Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being here today. Uh, it's been a good week this week. Not a whole lot going on. Well, I don't know. We're kind of busy. We had uh, spent some time with friends uh, one night and then uh, had Suzanne's birthday was uh, on Groundhog Day. And we went to dinner and, and had, had a nice evening. Uh, looking forward to um, spending time with uh, people a couple of nights coming up next week um, and then headed to Knoxville for a couple of days, one to do a family wedding. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that maybe next week. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it's just how God weaves things around and does things. And um, it, it's just one of those things. It's, it, it, this, this particular wedding is a great testimony to, I think, God's faithfulness and God's goodness. Um, but sometimes it requires us to wait a long time in this particular instance. <laughs> in fact, it took about 55 years <laughs> for it to come back around and God to, uh, to, to do something uh, that, that both of these people wanted for a long, long time. So anyway, sort of a, a fascinating story that I'll tell you next week. Um, anyway, so it, it was a good week this week. Nothing particularly exciting going on. Um, just kind of, you know, getting through life. So, uh, blessed beyond measure, as always. So today what I want to talk about is, is, is something to do with sort of understanding um, and, and how, do we, how do we understand what, what God wants. Um, and, and what we're going to see in the first lesson from Isaiah 58 is sort of um, how humankind can narrowly interpret God's Word in order to feel good about itself. Because it, it, it did what was called for. But, but God says it, it's not just doing something that matters. It's the intention of the heart that matters as much as anything else. And in the gospel, then, we're going to get Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount um, telling people, the, the disciples, those who are following him, when I say disciples in that one, it's going to be a pretty loose sense. I'm not speaking about a group of 12. I'm speaking about a, a large a larger group of people who had been attracted to his teaching because of the things that they had seen him do. They, they saw they were seeing him do miracles, and so they follow him, and then he gives the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he's going to talk about the law. He's going to talk about the written law and the oral law. It's going to be a little bit hidden. I'm going to, I'm going to show you why I say that as we go through it. Um, and, and then talk about righteousness and then in the epistle, it's from 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to tell us um, that we have the mind of Christ. In other words, we can understand things because we've give, been given the Holy Spirit. We can understand things and, and interpret and apply uh, things on the fly as we live. And we have a wisdom then that, that other people don't have because we've been given the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So there, there you go. That's the, that's the overview. And now we'll, let's come back and, and look at this. So the Isaiah passage is Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 12. begins with, cry aloud, don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. This is God speaking to the prophet. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. 
All right, so that's the, the charge the prophet is given, is lift up your voice, cry aloud, make a big deal out of this, make sure that everybody hears you. I want them to know what my charge is that I'm bringing against them. He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and didn't forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? In other words, we're doing the right things. We're doing what you asked us to do, but you don't seem to care that we're doing this. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? We're doing all the things you told us to do, and yet it doesn't seem to matter to you. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So, yeah, you, you, you're right. You fasted. Bully for you. And, and this is the same kind of stuff that Jesus fusses at the um, Pharisees and the scribes about. When, when, the, when the Pharisee is in the temple praying with the tax collector, one of the things he says is that I fast twice a week. I, I give a tithe of everything that I get, blah, 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 blah. And, and he's not um, excoriated for that, but, but he gets no credit for it either. For two reasons. One is he's taking credit for it now. He's getting his reward, as Jesus says, by doing this in public the way he is. And the second thing is is that, that he's doing it for the wrong reason. He, he's doing it to make himself look good, not, to, not because he loves God. So that's the, the, uh, the issue here that God's saying. You fast. In that day, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. In other words, the way you're fasting isn't to me. You're not doing what I told you to do. You're just doing a thing. It's a, it's a religious observance. There's no heart in it. There's no intention in it. There's no, there's no intention to hear from me. There's certainly no intention to actually humble yourself. You're not humbling yourself at all. Because if you were, then, then you'd be hearing from me. And you would hear my words, and you would hear me say, there's a problem. But you're not. You're, you're preoccupied when you fast. You're preoccupied with everything else. He says, is this such the, is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So you're doing all the religious stuff, but you're making a big deal out of it. You know, you're, you're just doing things in order that you might get something from me. It, that, that's not how things work. That's not the point of all that. What you, what you want to have is me, not stuff. But you're doing this so that you'll get stuff. He said, so God says, this is not the kind of thing that I want. So it's, it's incumbent on God to say, this is what I actually do want. So if you want to fast, and if you want to do a fast that's acceptable to me, then isn't this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I mean, essentially what, what God's saying is, is that, that, that the fast 
should be a time for introspection. It should be a time when you're able to hear me tell you changes that you need to make. That I'll tell you the sin in your life. I'll expose the stuff to you so that you will see what the world really looks like. Not, not from your vantage point, but from my vantage point. You know, you're fat and happy, and so you keep the fast, but you know, just because it's something you choose to do because you want more and more from me. And that's not what the point of the fast is, he said. The point of the fast is to open your eyes. There are people who are fasting every single day, not by choice, but because they're poor and they can't afford the necessities of life. And so when you fast, do it in solidarity with them. When you fast, Open your heart to see that suffering in the world around you. There's a certain amount of suffering that goes along with fasting. It it awakens us to the desires of our bodies in a different way. It awakens us to the fact that those desires tend to control our lives. They tend to overrun everything else. And so when we fast, then we begin to open ourselves up to hearing the word of the Lord and hearing and seeing the suffering of humankind. And it goes back to what, what Jesus says in Matthew 25, right? He says he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, and the goats of the sheep are going to be those people who saw him in hospital and visited him, who saw him naked, gave him clothing, who saw him thirsty, gave him water to drink, saw him um, in, in need of food, and gave him sustenance. And the goats are those who didn't do these things. And then their response on both ends is, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry, thirsty, or in prison? He said, when you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. So that's Jesus' response to, to that right there. He sums up that thing, that, that isn't this the kind of fast I choose? He sums it up there in Matthew 25 with that. He says, and God says, if you do those things, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In other words, if you keep the kind of fast that I'm doing, then your eyes are going to be opened to the suffering in the world around you, and you're going to reach out your hands in love to alleviate that suffering. You're going to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, cover the naked, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. And that, that hiding yourself from your own flesh is, is, is meant to push us back to the garden when they hid from God. He said, you, you're not hiding from me. You're hiding from other people. You're, you're, you're shielding your eyes so that you don't see the need in the world around you because that would have a call on you then to open not just your eyes but your hands and to release some of the blessings I've given you to these people. And he said, if you do these things, then, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Jesus is going to talk about let your light shine before men. And, and, and here, God's telling them how their light will break forth like the dawn. Here, this is how you make your light shine, is you do these things. You, you, you establish justice, and, and you do mercy. He says, if you do that, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he'll say, here I am. So if you do these things, God promises to be readily available at your beck and call almost. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness.
well, what is that yoke? And, you know, Jesus talks about his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so it's the yoke of the law that's, that is being talked about here. And, and that yoke is that, that you're tying up things on people that you, you yourselves are not even keeping. You're, you're making the law a burdensome thing. The pointing of the finger, in other words, the accusation and the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. He's, he's not telling them don't fast. He's telling them that your fast that you're doing now, I, I don't even notice it. it. It makes me ill because you're not doing it for the right reasons or in the right way or with the right attitude. I see oppression in the streets around me. I see people who don't care about other human beings. I see you have turned a blind eye to the suffering of my people. You're no better than the Pharaoh. You're not paying attention to this. You're making things worse. And even your fasts are worse than not fasting at all. And so it's the accusation God brings against his people. But the promise, though, if you'll do it the right way, if you'll notice these things in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the ones who mourn, blessed are the meek. All those people are the people whose eyes have been opened, and they see the world from God's perspective. They understand, they see, and they feel, and then they act on behalf of that. So that's who we're called to be. And Jesus is going to say exactly that. And, and it's, it, he's going to say it in a way that's veiled to us, but wouldn't have been veiled to them, his hearers. On the Sermon on the Mount, he, this is Matthew five thirteen to 20. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt has a purpose. Well, so this, this term, salt of the earth, you know, I've done, over the years, I've done lots and lots of research on, on the properties of salt, you know, and, and it's to season, it's to preserve, it's to do all kinds of things, but, it, but it'll also kill, right? I mean, you salt the earth, will make it unproductive. And so there, there's plenty of, of benefits of salt. It, it, it's constantly and always been one of the most valuable commodities in the world. Roman soldiers used to get a portion of their, their uh, salaries paid in salt. There have been salt taxes everywhere. The Great Rebellion in India was actually over salt. Here it was tea, there it was salt. There, so there's this, uh, this long, long important thing from salt, and salt was a very abundant commodity in, in, in the region because of the Dead Sea. But, the, but it also referred to the salt of Sodom. And so at the end of uh, every meal, you wash your hands after the meal that lest any of the salt of Sodom cling to you. But, but more than that, Torah was described as salt of the earth. 
because it brought seasoning to life. It, it brought truth to life. And so it, it can be used as an abrasive. It can be, there's all kinds of purposes for salt, but the Torah was considered salt of the earth because it, it gave a different zest and flavor to life if you lived by the Torah itself. So you, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. So in the intention from Deuteronomy forward, I mean, Moses made it very clear in Deuteronomy exactly what it was supposed to look like in the land when they came into the land. And this is before they ever entered the land. He saw uh, the way things were intended to be, the way God wanted them to be in the land. And that is that it was to be a place that was filled literally with the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 6. Um, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You'll tell them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontless between your eyes. You write them on the doorposts, on the houses and on your gates. And, and it goes on and on. That, that the land is to be filled with the law of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And, and God just goes on and on about this. And Moses does, I mean, in, in Deuteronomy 6. And, and the point is that they are to be the Torah. They are to be the ones who live by Torah in such a way that, that they bring salt to the earth. People can understand the blessedness of God's people because they, they stand apart and they add something to life. The Torah adds something to life that, that makes it more wonderful than if they didn't have it than if they were like the other nations. And so they are to be salt of the earth because they're to be the people whose lives are governed by Torah. And so they're to be blessed. So, and then he says, you're the light of the world. Well, it's probably not going to surprise you when I tell you that that was one of the things that they called the Torah as well. It was the light of the world because it brought that primordial light, the light which was the first creation, which was not the sun and moon stars, because those are created later to fill the void in the skies, that that, that light is the light which enlivens, enlightens every man. And so the Torah was, was the owner's manual for the world. And, and the way they understand it is, is that, that the Torah was the blueprint for creation. So Torah actually preceded creation and that's the reason it's the light of the world it's when it god says let there be light then that's the torah coming into the world the knowledge of god and the knowledge of his ways coming into the world and so jesus here says you are the light of the world because we're to be filled with torah we're to be to be filled with his holy spirit that his word might live in us jesus says i am the light of the world and when he says that, what he's saying is, is that, that if you want to understand the Torah, if you want to understand the Word of God, then I'm showing you what it looks like. I am the Word. So you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So when they see your good works, they'll give glory to the Father in heaven because they'll, they'll know that you're a true son or daughter of that Father. And your good works is an important thing. Jesus never said there's anything wrong with works. In fact, he constantly says, blessed is the one who hears and does over and over and over again. It's important that, that our, our, our lives show forth his glory, just as, the, as he told the Israelites through Isaiah, and, and just as Jesus does in Matthew 25 and everywhere else, <laughs> frankly, throughout Scripture. I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's, it's doing something. The parable of the prodigal son, again, the father's doing something. It's always, always about life, not just about head knowledge, but about life knowledge. In the late 19th century, there was a, probably the greatest living philosopher of the time was William James. And he, he wrote an essay and gave a, a, a talk that it's funny because it, it, it's described by some as notorious. And, and it's called The Will to Believe. And his argument in there is, is that, that there's something called precursive faith, which says it's faith that runs ahead of the evidence. So, in other words, you believe something before you can prove that thing. It's basically how science is even done. You come up with a hypothesis for a reason. You believe something to be true. And then the, the scientific process is the investigation of whether or not your hypothesis is true or not. So it, that's precursive faith, right? I believe this to be true. Now I'm seeking the evidence. And, th- and that's exactly why this podcast is called Faith Seeking Understanding. I have chosen to believe And now, in every way, I'm seeking to understand and seeking to show that what I believe is actually true. And so it's an interesting thing. There's a a pragmatic thing about it, and that is is that that, that it's intended, the the faith that I have is intended to to drive my life. My life is, is intended to be centered on what I believe. And I believe that, that it's more than just eternal life that I get out of this. I believe it has a practical application and a practical benefit on a daily basis. And I know that it's true. For instance, I know with, with uh, what we've experienced in the last year with Will's death, and, and even before that, with, it, with the fall the year before, that the way we navigated that and the way we're still navigating it is by faith. I know that he's with the Lord. And I know that the Lord healed him in order to save him. And so I, I can navigate that with, with confidence that God is good. And, and that makes all the difference. It has a, my, What I believe has to have a practical um, implication in my life. It won't help me to understand everything. Because like Job, we can't possibly understand everything because we weren't there from creation, and, and everything that we do is woven into the story that began at creation. And so we can't understand all these things, and so we have to lay down the desire to understand. I'm just seeking to know Him. And the more I know of Him, the easier it is for me to navigate this world. And so when our light shines before others that they may see our good works, it's exactly what God's calling us to do with the fast in uh, Isaiah 58, 
that they can see the things we do. And that's exactly what God says. Do these things. Don't just fast. Do all this stuff, too. And then Jesus goes on to say, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I, I, I didn't come to say all that's wrong. That, that's all from God. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's an iota? Well, it's the smallest Greek letter, but the yod, which we would call a jot, is the smallest of Hebrew letters. And so iotas and dots are jots and tittles. Those, those are, you I mean, you're familiar with jots and tittles. You're familiar with that saying, probably. He says, not, not one of those will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And what we can come to a conclusion on is, is, is that every little part of the law. But actually, that's a term here that Jesus is using that, that doesn't refer to Torah specifically and straight up. It does, ultimately, but, it, but it's the oral law. And that's what it was called. There's a story, there's a midrash on Moses. And, and so Moses supposedly goes up to God and he sees God working diligently over, I guess, a parchment. I have no earthly idea. But he's, he's messing about with the little marks that go above the letters in Hebrew. And then, and then not just that, but also sometimes there'll be a little bit of an extension that, on a letter and that'll change the letter. That little tiny extension will change the letter from one letter to another. And, and God's working diligently on those. And, and, and Moses basically says, why are you wasting your time with that? And he says, I'm not wasting my time with that. This is important stuff. There's going to come a man a long time after you who is going to um, find many, many, many laws in these jots and tittles. And his name is Rabbi Akiva. And, and so Moses says, let me see this man. So he says, okay. He says, now walk backwards. And so he walks backwards and he goes back and suddenly finds himself in the eighth row in Rabbi Akiva's academy, and Rabbi Akiva lived just shortly after the time of Jesus and was put to death by the Romans, ultimately for, for refusing to stop teaching Torah when they had told him to. So, so he is, he's listening to him speak, and, and Moses doesn't understand anything that's being said, doesn't understand what Rabbi Akiva's saying, doesn't understand what the students are saying, and he's initially, his breath is taken away, and then somebody asks him, where do you derive all this? And he said, I got it all from the Torah given to Moses. He breathes a great sigh of relief and says, then he goes back to the Lord and he says, so why did you, this man's so much greater than me, why did you allow me to be the one to do this? And God says, my intention is my intention. It's not up to you to question that. He said, can I see what happens to him? And then God shows him that he's put to death, ultimately, for this very work. But those are the jots and tittles. It's the oral law. So Jesus says, not a one of these will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus is going to accomplish all those things and fulfill all those things. And then we can, we can have a different understanding of things. The ceremonial law is going to go away because we will we'll no longer have a temple. And then there's other parts of the law that are going to go away. God's going to do away with the dietary laws in order to extend the kingdom to the Gentiles. Because food shouldn't be a barrier to the extension of the kingdom. And so, it, but, but he explicitly does that. <laughs> In the time of the apostles, God, God tells Peter, go and kill and eat, which is to essentially to say, go, go have fellowship, food fellowship with the Gentiles. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
So it's not, it's not given to us to relax God's commandments. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We've got to be doers and teachers, doers and hearers. It's always doers. There's never a place where Jesus says, just believe, and you'll be good enough. No, it's always whoever does them and teaches them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And and as I've said many times before, that's got to be the most demotivating thing Jesus could possibly have said, because they're standing in awe of the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. And here Jesus says, your your righteousness has got to be even more than that. And if not, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. That that's a really really difficult thing. It's a, the barrier that Jesus puts up there is so great it's unbelievable. But then he fulfills all that and accomplishes all that on our behalf. And so my righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because my righteousness is Jesus himself. It's an alien righteousness imputed to me when I go to the cross and confess my sins and repent of those sins. Because, see, confession is sort of intellectual agreement with God. Repentance says, I really do agree with you. I, I am appalled by sin in such a way that I'm turning away from it. I see it the way you do. We're not only supposed to see the world the way God does, we're intended to see our own sins as God sees those sins and turn away from those things. And so in that exchange, we leave our sins there, don't walk away from the cross intending to do them later, and we receive forgiveness, grace, and righteousness. We are justified in the sight of God by receiving the perfect righteousness of Jesus that so far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees as to make theirs look like filthy rags, Paul says. In the letter to the Corinthians today, we're in 1 Corinthians 2, the first 16 verses, and I promise we'll work through them in five minutes. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come like some sort of philosopher. No, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, why would that be? Because that's the only way to salvation. I had to preach the message of salvation to you. I I had to keep it simple for the sake of your souls. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So what he's saying is that my message was accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So there, there must have been works that Paul did in the same way that Moses had, had signs to give the people, in order to authenticate himself and that he was actually representing God. He was given signs to perform before the people so that they would believe him. And it's exactly the same thing that Paul says happened here in Corinth. Now, just quickly, the reason Paul's saying some of this is because others have come in later with, quote, wisdom, and they were impressed by these people. And that's the reason he says, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus. And and what he's saying here is, is that, yeah, I might not have come to you with words of lofty wisdom, but I came giving you the most important thing I have to give you, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The power of the cross, he says, is all that really matters. And so, yeah, I wasn't as impressive a speaker as those guys were, but my message was attended with power and a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, because he's already told them there's not many of you guys who were all that sharp. <laughs> so you're relying on somebody else's words, and I'm telling you, I've resolved to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I did that, it wasn't me that it draw attention, drew attention to. It was him, because it was a demonstration of spirit and power. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, you're, it, which is the implication is you're not. So you, you weren't ready to hear that. Although it's not a wisdom of the age or the rulers of the age who are doomed to pass away. It's a different kind of wisdom. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And again, it goes back to that precursive faith. It says, I believe, and because I believe now, I'm ready to get more wisdom, more knowledge, more understanding. What no eye has seen, ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That loving part comes first. And then these things, he says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We've been given the Spirit, he says, to understand these things. But more than that, we've been given these things that we might apply those things as well. So we understand the law and the interpretation, which would be the law and the oral law. We, we understand the law and the proper interpretations of those things, and we can apply them in our situation as we go along because we have comprehension and understanding because we have the Spirit. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual to, truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. You have to have the Holy Spirit, Paul says. They're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you don't have the spiritual uh, um, capacity to discern these spiritual things. And that's part of the reason that I'm not intended to judge everybody else because they don't have the Spirit. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, we have the mind of Christ. So if we have the mind of Christ, then we are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We're to let our light shine before others that they may see good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We've been given the mind of Christ. You've been given the capacity to understand the word of God and the things of God. You've been given the capacity and the ability to, to, to apply your understanding of God and his ways to your way, to your life. Mindfulness is a big important thing right now, right? In the, in the psychological world, everything is about mindfulness. Well, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to to not live life on sort of um, autopilot or cruise control. No, but to, have, to live mindfully. And what does it mean to live mindfully? It means to live a life characterized by prayer, 
um, a life that says, Lord, what would you have me do in this situation? Give me the mind of Christ that I might live in such a way as to display your glory. And so to have the mind of Christ requires work on our part. It requires us to rely on that rather than just to live on cruise control. We know how to interpret it. We can have confidence that God will answer our prayers if we're doing the works of God. If we have the mind of Christ, then we can have confidence God will answer our prayers and he will guard our steps and he will light our way but only to the extent that we are willing to rely on him and we're willing to hear his correction in our lives. And then we can be truly the salt of the earth and the light of the world, both of which are necessary for life on this planet. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.